good group of people out tonight, students. Uh, I'm Tom Landy. I direct the uh, Reverend Michael C. McFarland SJ Center for Religion, Ethics, and Culture. I said that all in one breath. Uh, the McFarland Center organizes lectures, conferences, and other programs that support our mission in fostering a dialogue on issues of meaning, morality, and mutual obligation. Last year, the McFarland Center spent some time exploring issues related to borders and the movement of people. Uh, we, have a whole, we have a number of lectures related to this online on human trafficking and the global slave trade, the tension created by the concentration of Christians, Muslims, and Jews along the 10th parallel, and the creative protests surrounding migration and border control. You can find these on our website at holycross.edu slash the McFarland Center. Today's talk continues in that vein on global justice and traffic in humans for organs. We're really fortunate today to have Nancy Shepard Hughes here today. Uh, we had a truly fascinating lunch with sociology and anthropology faculty and students today, uh, and she joined a medical anthropology class after that. Nancy is Chancellor's Professor at the, in Medical Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley, where she directs the doctoral program in critical studies in medicine, science, and the body. Last year, she was a member of the Institute for Advanced Studies School of Social Science in Princeton. Throughout her really remarkable career, Professor Shepard Hughes has focused on anthropology of violence, madness in culture, inequality and marginality, and childhood in the family. She's highly esteemed for her, her ethnographies, including Saints and Schizophrenics, Mental Illness in Rural Island, and one of my favorite books ever, Death Without Weeping, The Violence of Everyday Life in Brazil. Concerned about the global inequities that face, facilitate organ trafficking, Professor Shepard Hughes launched the medical human rights project called Organs Watch with three other professors in 1999. She tells me that when she started calling attention to global organ trafficking, she was ridiculed often and very publicly by government officials, doctors, and others who said she was making this up. She spent several years investigating an international ring of organ traffickers based in New York, New Jersey, and Israel. She's also interviewed hundreds of third world organ sellers who felt that they were being taken advantage of, threatened, or tricked into selling their organs. She serves in as an advisor to the World Health Organization on issues related to global trans uh, transplantation. And as a first-rate scholar, she not only helps us realize the existence of organ trafficking, but helps us think about its larger context and implications. So I'm very pleased to have her t uh, here, and please join me in welcoming Nancy Shepard Hughes. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Tom. I have a lot on, uh, the, I guess, my table, what I'd like to present to you, and I want to have time for your responses. So start thinking about questions right away. Some of you might have read a couple of my articles. It's really hard to summarize a project that has engrossed me for 15 years. If I had known that when I first applied for an Open Society Institute grant, that I would be dedicating 15 years to going around the world following errant kidneys, I don't think I would have done it. <laughs> but once there, um, I, I had to stick it out uh, because uh, initially there was, as Tom said, so, so much resistance to the topic, which was seen as maybe appropriate for uh, Hollywood or uh, you know, science fiction but not really part of ethnography. But in fact, um, 
kidneys are good to think with. You know, we used to say in Levi Straussian days, you know, that kinship or totemism or, you know, whatever concept that emerged, that these things were good to think with. And uh, what the emergence of what I call transplant trafficking, although others have called transplant tourism or commerce and organs or compensated gifting, um, uh, makes us uh, really rethink um, some of the, the discourses that we use. And one of the discourses, I mean, I, over these 15 years, have moved from looking at uh, transplant, uh, illegal transplants in terms of everything from debt bondage and something analogous to, although I don't like the use of the word surgery, uh, 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 slavery, to looking at it in terms of the commodification and reification of the body. So Louis Vacant and I put together a book on the commodified body. Uh, we uh, began to shift, uh, my associates and I, towards the trafficking discourse. And I did so with some trepidation. And so one of the things I want to bring up, and I'll be using some clips of films. I did quite a bit of work with documentary filmmakers. Um, is the question of uh, the dangers and the risks of trafficking, which is a dangerous discourse. What does it mean about the mobility of individuals and their ability to uh, exercise a certain kind of agency, limited though it is? Is sex trafficking like organs trafficking or arms trafficking? In which way is it different? So. Um, so I have a, a few things I want to do. I want a, a little bit of a history of how one gets into a topic such as organs trafficking, especially at a period when everyone thinks it doesn't exist. Um, what were the things that drove it? And uh, how you combine scholarly, anthropological, and public engagements in uh, an example of what Pierre Bourdieu had called scholarship with commitment. And. Um, I also want to talk about the question of values and moralities because having now worked in a variety of countries and collaborated with international transplant societies, with uh, the European Union, with the um, Council of Europe, with the Istanbul Summit meeting of transplant doctors, and beginning with my first engagement with a group that really gave rise to Organs Watch, the Bellagio Task Force in Organs Trafficking, which was in 1995-1996. I learned a lot about moralities and values. We all have them, everybody, everywhere, and in all the positions that uh, I've looked at, from all the positions I've looked at, uh, let me for now just call it transplant trafficking, the ethical thinking of the surgeons, of the buyers, of the sellers, of the brokers, of uh, the hospital administrators. I'll show you some of the people that are involved in this. Uh, I can tell you that all you know, have a cultural moral logic to what they're doing, and they are in contention. Uh, I've also learned in uh, attending these international UN meetings, meetings on trafficking, WHO meetings, trying to look at this problem, it's impossible to state that there are universal global values. 
there is actually been proposed by some cognitive anthropologists that there is a universal ethical standard or uh, almost like a global ethical grammar that all people share on certain levels. And I can say that while people are willing to get together as we did in 2008 at the Istanbul summit, doctors from north and south, east and west, trying to decide what, if anything, to do about the problem of cross-border or, uh, you know, uh, what I call kidneys without borders, whether to regulate it, whether to prohibit it, what to call it, what to name it, how to feel about it, that as I moved around the room for three days, I found that the meaning of kidney selling varied greatly, the meaning of what can be sold and what can't be sold the meaning of the, uh, of, the, of the body itself and who owns the body differs. Even notions of justice and fairness differ from place to place. And yet, despite all those differences, people can get together and compromise and say, just a world that we can all agree we're comfortable living in. What are the, what, you know, how much can we each give on one side or the other? If you live, for example, in the Middle East, it's very, very hard to get a transplant. It's very hard because of cultural and religious reservations about the handling of the dead body. Their religious leaders may say, no, we accept brain dead, it's all right. But at the level of local culture, at the level of local communities, people think it's wrong. And so in the Middle East and in many uh, parts of uh, also Southeast Asia and the Philippines, if you're going to have a transplant, it's going to come from a living donor. Then you have problems of people who say, it's, it's too difficult to ask a living person in my family. Will it always be women? Will it always be the women that will be the universal donors? Isn't it better? to help out a poor person somewhere else in the world, a total stranger, and, and, and give them uh, the opportunity to make some money by selling their kidney. So uh, I, one of my more interesting moral uh, discussions, I've had several, one was with a group of Chinese transplant surgeons who uh, were meeting at the international transplant meetings in Vienna several years ago, knowing full well that the US government was about to extend a ban on Chinese sur uh, transplant surgeons coming as postdoctoral fellows or scholars to US medical schools because of the use of executed uh, prisoners for their organs. And so I sat down with them and they said, we can trust you, you're very outspoken. Tell us what is the problem with using executed prisoners who are felons? They are going to be dead anyway. This is a way for their families to redeem themselves. We don't have questions about consent and informed consent because we don't think like that. We're a more collectivized society and we think that medicine knows best. It's somewhat paternalistic. That's just where we are in Chinese society. Is it because uh, people in the West disapprove of uh, the death penalty? He said, it can't be true in the United States because you have the death penalty. That's not the problem. So really, let me explain why we think this is okay. It was a very uh, interesting uh, conversation. I've had moral discussions that went on for a very, very long time with some of the brokers 
including brokers that I helped get prosecuted and in jail, one of the most amazing men of which was Captain Gadi Talba, who was with Mossad in Israel. As a child, he was caught in a post-World War II detention camp, separated from his families, who were sent to, from his parents, who were sent to Serbia. In the jail cell, for two summers, back to back, every Sunday, religiously, I sat in the, in the jail cell with Gadi Talba, and I said, tell me why you thought it was okay to team up with a military police buddy of yours, a Brazilian, who you met at some police conference in Miami, and settle in Brazil in order to recruit very, very poor Brazilians from the slums and send them as far away as Johannesburg and Durban, South Africa, to provide kidneys with kidney transplants performed by South African surgeons on Israeli transplant tourists and some European and a couple of Americans um, over a three-year period. Why was that morally okay and justified? And his answer was essentially that I shouldn't judge him unless I was standing in his shoes. He said, what if you and your family had been wiped out by the Holocaust? What if you finally managed to uh, be brought to Israel when it was just in formation? What if you had been in, uh, under fire in three different wars? And he shows me all of his scars. And he said, and what if someone proposes to you in Israel one way of healing the damaged social body of Israel would be to see that everyone in Israel could get the transplant that they needed. What if I told you I did this because I was being patriotic for my country? Would it make a difference? Well, you know, anthropologists don't necessarily buy into the assumptive world of all their informants, but we do have a moral obligation to understand them, to realize that the people we talk to are not moral idiots. They have, they have their reasons, they have their explanations, and, uh, and what's important is to open up a dialogue. Anyway, since mobility was one of the topics that I knew you were quite interested in, I guess uh, I would say that it is the extraordinary mobility uh, of the world that we live in right now, and I mean the mobility of populations, of individuals, the mobility of uh, the internet, the mobility of, uh, of, of advanced technologies, all of these have created a situation that was ripe for what kindly uh, phrase transplant tourism you know, could, uh, could happen. Mobility, of course, creates um, possibilities and it creates constraints, often side by side. Uh, mobility, however, is always contingent and the ability to move, to be mobile, is a defining feature for only certain populations and subjects. Crossing borders and reshaping bodies, the transfer of um, advanced technologies, whether it be in vitro fertilization or transplant technology, is available to some super medical citizens and not to others. So many others are unable to participate or their mobility is actually coerced and forced. So 
what I'll be doing is talking about the emergence of, uh, of transplant tourism within the context of what we call neoliberal globalization, uh, global capitalism, and the spread of technologies. And, and these have, uh, among their effects, incited new tastes, new desires, new demands, including the demands for the organs of the other. My colleague, Lawrence Cohen, with whom I uh, co-founded and with uh, David and Sheila Rothman at Columbia University, Organs Watch, Lawrence Cohen refers to the awesome bioavailability of some bodies in the world. And um, I think that people have said to me, you know, is there a slippery slope in transplant? I'll tell you what my surgeon friends say. They said there was always built in to transplant a slippery slope. Uh, it was there from the start because, number one, as many of you know, perhaps those of you that have read Margaret Locke's book, transplant had to reinvent death in order to get organs that they could use from deceased persons who, until brain death was accepted as a second form of death, uh, it would have been homicide for the doctors to have taken those organs. So you have law, crime, and uh, the nature of the definition of death being defined by a need. So that put transplant surgery on what you could say is a, a kind of a slippery slope. And then second, when uh, there was still pockets of strong resistance to the definition of brain death, then the second problem was the introduction of living donors, initially family members, siblings, because of tissue uh, matching. And when, with the development of very, very strong immunosuppressant drugs, then the ethics changed with that. So the technology was really guiding the development of ethical reason and moral reason. And uh, so then it was possible that an unrelated person could donate, while alive, a kidney, half of a liver, one lung. And uh, as some of the transplant surgeons in the United States told me who had become in, involved in international transplant trafficking, they said, it isn't our fault. The standards just kept changing. And he, it, one of the doctors involved, who's now retired, I won't give his name, said it went from absolutely only you know, certified brain dead, then relatives, then it could be someone in your church, then it could be somebody uh, you met at the local bar, and then it was, hey, I just had a cup of coffee at Starbucks, and this person wants to give me a kidney. And he said at that point, it put transplant surgery at risk. He said, because surgeons are not detectives. And although the law says that, you know, the law is very clear, NOTA, the National Organ Transplant Act, says that everything about donation of organs has to be voluntary, uncoerced, and free. And uh, he said, but, you know, there really isn't a way of supervising that. And if two people come to you and say that they're related, okay, that has to be good enough for us. We don't know what they've exchanged behind the scenes, but as long as I don't get part of it, it's okay. And from there, he said, this, then it would, would actually fall to the point where you said, well, 
if, it, if more people will have their lives improved, we won't even say saved by transplant, from coming overseas and paying us and bringing donors that they say are voluntary, well, we'll do that as well. And so um, this one surgeon in particular said, we just got caught is what happened. But anyway, I think I'm going to tell you the story and then uh, through um, the beginnings to where it is now and then open up for questions and then we can sort of also talk about some of the moral and ethical dimensions and what some of the solutions might possibly be. So um, the question initially was whether or not uh, organs trafficking was even possible or was it a kind of a blood libel against certain populations or was it appropriate simply for Hollywood film? And uh, Organs Watch was in fact founded uh, to decipher rumors and what would be seen as uh, moral panics or hysterias from the really real spread of illicit networks of international organs trafficking. So this is where my work began in Northeast Brazil and in the middle of writing Death Without Weeping, uh, here I was studying a population that was among the poorest in Brazil, sugarcane cutters, wage laborers, debt peons, people with an extraordinarily high infant mortality uh, and maternal morbidity, which I should have studied uh, more of, death squads operating, it was during the military dictatorship, bodies were disappearing, and what were people telling me? They were telling me boogeyman stories, that's how I understood it, of organ thieves who were after their children, and uh, that um, the, the children would disappear, and sometimes they'd be found in dumpsters. But then I found, when I began following their stories, that the real, the unreal, and the uncanny could often collide. And uh, one of the first realities was the fact that bodies, especially bodies of people that are, are sub-citizens, either because they don't have the proper registration materials or because they were uh, killed in an accident on a plantation and were brought to a hospital, that it was very easy for people to be designated as um, unnamed persons in the police morgues or in the hospitals even and they would very readily uh, be used for what would be technically illicit organs harvesting. I heard many, many stories. This goes back you know, to the early 1980s and followed up on them and visited the morgues and the hospitals and found out that there was this gray zone whereby if uh, a person came in and you couldn't immediately find who they were, within 24 hours you could begin to start harvesting. At the same time, there was this problem of uh, street children in the 1980s and 90s. They were being disappeared. They did sometimes show up with organs taken, but I believe that the death squads that were in operation were sometimes uh, mutilating these children and older kids just to give a lesson to people. And so this was a march in Timbauba, the town I call Bon Jesus de Mata, where children who lost siblings and in a couple of cases, their playmates, you know, making a, a protest in the community about it. Another thing that stirred these rather extreme, you might say, versions of the organ trafficking panic, really, was the intense 
operation of international adoption networks in Brazil until they were, began to be closed down in the 1990s. And so one of the chants that would go up during these processions and, and protests would be, where are our missing brothers and sisters? And the fear was they were sold, you know, that sometimes babies who were adopted were adopted by doctors. Uh, some of the places that produced these babies were illegal orphanages. I closed one down in the 1980s. But the rumor that somehow these disappeared babies that went into the international networks of adoption were being used by, uh, you know, for organs donors. I said, no, that's absolutely a rumor. This is a meeting with Deborah Budiani, who's a medical anthropologist who works on trafficking, myself, and uh, uh, a Philippine doctor who's been trying to crack down on trafficking there, and Captain Hilberg from the South African Police Force. Now, what... Uh, makes this, the, these fears that seem so irrational, people are not grabbing children and taking their organs, was the, the appearance on the internet of, um, of, of various agencies that were providing organs or promising to provide organs. One of the most awful was one called medical adoptions, the organs you need and uh, the home they deserve. Uh, this was put down. I believed this was totally a ruse, but it was, it was really quite lethal. Uh, the, the, they were claiming that they had representatives in many countries from south, the south of the United States to Southeast Asia, from Africa, and uh, they said, look, these children are guaranteed orphans. They are homeless. They, they are being offered to you for adoption in exchange since you will be keeping them, you may take one of their kidneys. That's what they were arguing. But I believe this was meant as a, as a spoof, but it really frightened people enormously. So uh, what many of the transplant surgeons will tell you is that, tra that transplant is a victim of its success. That is, and really we're talking about kidney transplant because uh, you know, if you go onto the UNUS website every day, you'll see that the demand for especially kidneys goes up and up and up, 100,000 people. I remember when it was just 60,000 people were needing. The um, average number of, ki of, ki of kidney transplants in the United States in a year is no more than 15 to 20,000. So that means an awful lot of people are stuck on waiting lists without getting their organs. And uh, it is because of the, uh, the fact that the demand is exceeding the deceased donor and the reluctance of, of relatives to, to donate organs, which I think is a reasonable one. Um, it, what's happened is that people say, I, I'm not saying relatives should not donate, but I think that there have been some changes in the patterns of donation within families that I do find alarming. One is the fact that um, uh, very old people over, and I'm pretty close myself at the age of 68, uh, people over 70 and 80 are allowed to list on the waiting list. So I call it a kind of an artificially induced um, scarcity because obviously when you're in your 80s, your organs begin to fail. The, uh, but the issue is with somebody's kidney, you can live longer. And uh, now some doctors at UCSF, because it was studied by my colleague Sharon Kaufman, 
have been telling their elderly patients, you have a harder time to get an organ, can you ask your grandchildren? That is grandchildren over the age of 18, but still, it, it seems to be an inversion of what uh, family relations are if you follow David Schneider and his understanding of American kinship models to have grandparents looking to grandchildren for their organs. So the other solution is, uh, some is, is, is the, um, the black market in kidneys, which begins to arise really uh, in the early 1980s. Uh, but it was, at that point, pretty much limited to, to South Asia and the Philippines. But uh, then it began to, uh, and I'll show you some of the countries. So uh, what were the questions that, or, that I raised in this, in this very, very simple ones? Whose organ? Where did you get it? Was it a gift? Was it paid for? Or did it involve something that you could call theft and that it was coerced? So here uh, from the internet, uh, is uh, one I picked up from a newspaper in Jerusalem, the other from the Diario di Pernambuco in Recife. There are wanted and there are for sales. And this is still probably the main um, medium because the internet is a little bit dangerous. You could get caught, you could get stopped. Even Google has been asked to you know, try to cut down people uh, posting trafficking notices. But in little newspapers, uh, the kind you get when you go to the grocery store, these, these, these appear. So you do have both a demand and a supply, you might say, that uh, is at work here. And so these are uh, some figures that I uh, had published in um, uh, Foreign Affairs. And so this was a, an unemployed musician advertising his readiness to sell a kidney in Sao Paulo. And these are just some of the countries that are involved uh, more since this time. It's an extremely mobile, I won't say, or there's a series of international organizations and companies that operate, but uh, as a practice, it, uh, uh, all you need if you get into trouble in one country is to just find one clinic in another country that will set you up and some of the brokers and brokerage firms I've been working with say that they don't stay in a new country, a fresh country, for more than a few months before they've got another country to go to. And now Central Asia is one of the places to go. So um, this is uh, not black and white. As the uh, Judge Thompson proceeded over the first ever prosecution in the United States of an organs broker last July, 11th. I was there for the uh, sentence. It took a full day because there were witnesses on both sides talking for and against the company that Mr. Isaac Rosenbaum, who is an Israeli citizen, set up in Brooklyn, but that serviced international transplant um, patients with, tra with illegal transplants with poor people who were initially brought primarily from Israel, new immigrants from Russia, Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria, who were kind of being offered uh, a deal. That is, uh, you may have a hard time settling into Israel. You've come from a very poor economy. You don't have the education of our you know, long-term citizens in Israel. 
So we'll help you out if you serve as a kidney seller. And uh, so uh, uh, Rosenbaum specialized in bringing these so-called new immigrants into U.S. hospitals. I learned about his activities um, around 1999, 2000, and um, I didn't know what to do. Do you share the information or do you say, no, this is your uh, obligation as an anthropologist to respect all of your informants? Um, actually, Mr. Rosenbaum would not be, uh, he did not agree to tell me about uh, his organization, but many of the buyers and the sellers did. And then one day I decided maybe I would have to go public about it. Uh, I think it was in 2002 when I had a series of email exchanges with a man who I knew was using a pseudonym named David Hamilton. And he wrote to me and he said, I've, I've read your work and um, it really gave me the freedom to write to you. He said, I work for an organization in Brooklyn that is uh, setting up illicit transplants mainly with Russians. And he said, I... Uh, originally, this organization was a charity organization. It was meant to help Israelis get uh, operations and surgeries that they could not get in Israel. But once it went into kidneys, then it became a criminal organization because we were breaking the laws in the United States. We were bringing in people who were desperate, uh, equally desperate were, of course, the buyers, many of them too old to be transplanted in Israel, many of whom had been rejected for transplant, so it was putting them at risk. But they had insurance that would pay for this. We could recruit these people, so we brought them into the hospitals. And he said, but the problem was they might have been willing when they were, you know, uh, first contacted to sell a kidney, but once they got to New York, they got frightened and they couldn't get out of the deal. So very much like trafficking, they would be harassed and really coerced into getting up on the tables. So uh, very early on in my writings, I saw that the uh, sale of kidneys and other organs followed the normal routes, uh, established routes of capital. So these kidneys moved with inside the bodies of the sellers, you know, from southern countries to northern, from uh, east to west, from poorer to more affluent bodies, no surprises here, from black and brown to white, from poor males to more affluent males. And although women in some parts of the world are primary sellers, especially in South Asia, in the, in the dozen countries that I've worked in, it's mainly young men who are the sellers of kidneys. But women are rarely the recipients of purchased kidneys. So uh, I call these um, young men universal kidney donors, uh, areas of Bangladesh and India, and as I said, also the Philippines. Uh, now this is very, very low statistics because the fact is it's uh, Ill illicit behavior, it's illegal everywhere in the world except in Iran, which has the only regulated kidney sale uh, program, and it's had it for 20 years. But uh, so working with the WHO, going over all the statistics that I could produce and my associates in Organs Watch, which include many anthropologists and human rights activists from all of the countries I've mentioned, who usually work as volunteers, sometimes just a small amount of money, 
that they need, you know, uh, for their subsistence. We've decided to say that um, more or less a low estimate is that 15% of the world's living donor transplants are sold through brokers. But you could break this down and say, well, but how many of these are truly coerced sellers? How many are consensual sellers or just contracted sellers? How many of these illicit transplants are uh, organized through crime, criminal networks? How many are purchased between buyer and seller on the internet? As, for example, Craigslist or Med2Go. And how many are legal and of these transacted? And that really is Iran, and I'm happy to answer questions. Now, if the kidney is, as, a, as I like to say, the blood diamond of uh, organs trafficking, it's a strange kind of commodity because uh, unlike pork butts or another com commodity, kidneys vary in how much you'll be paid as, as the seller depending on uh, the biases of the buyer populations who often say that they'll, you know, they'll, they'll pay, pay more and, uh, and it also it depends on the brokers, the local brokers that handle it. So you can get as little. Iraq pre-war was one of the best deals in the world. Saddam Hussein was actually involved in it. And uh, many military governments get involved in it. Why? I guess it's because they can. And because they control the bodies of the population, they can also control and monitor and, and, and make a profit from organs trafficking. Okay, um, so the question is really what do we call this because uh, there are many different kinds of behaviors happening. Some people like to see it as uh, more normalized as another version of medical migrations. Uh, others just focus on the commerce in organs uh, or trafficking in humans for organs. Uh, I say what's being sold is not the kidney. What's being sold is the illegal transplant. That's what people pay for. The average price, if you wanted to go on an internet and find out where to go, I could tell you. Uh, I, I mean, I'll tell you not to do it, but I can, you, you can find out for yourself. The average cost is about $180,000 to get a, a, a fresh kidney. It's a lot of money. Um, and so the, to say that, oh, well, $180,000 for a kidney, no, you're paying to corrupt hospitals, Transplant surgeons, translators, safe house operators, uh, the blood workups in the labs, all of those people, uh, the visa and passport control people, they're all being bribed in order to do this. So whereas I began thinking of uh, transplant trafficking as in terms of ethics, I read a lot of Kant. Uh, I read a lot of Levinas in trying to imagine how I would think through the ethics of this. And uh, then I began to think of it as, hmm, medical malpractice. And then I realized that for a large uh, uh, part of the true international trafficking, it is organized crime and their human rights abuses. Okay, the UN office, which I work with on drugs and crime, took the most strong stand, one that only in certain circumstances I would ever use myself but they have declared it when it's transnational, involving exploitation, and often, as happens, targeting an enemy population. 
That's where this question of crimes against humanity come, as in Kosovo, after the end of the, the war, um, uh, the, the Kosovo War, and because in, in response to the genocide in Bosnia, what happened, and I am um, uh, an advisor to prosecutors in Kosovo, is it still has not been proven to, I'd say, my own uh, standards, let alone, I think, the legal standards. But former KLA operatives like David Hamilton, who called me and said, help me, who do I talk to? How do I get out of this? My, I have a crisis of conscience. And in that case, with Rosenbaum, I went to the Commissioner of Health in New York. And after that, they told me I had to talk to an FBI agent. The FBI agent did very, very little. I said, good. I just, I didn't, I was, I was past my comfort zone. In Kosovo, something similar happened. Uh, some former KLA militants spoke to journalists, including journalists from the Center for Investigative Reporting at Berkeley. And they said that uh, it was well known that at the end of the Kosovo War, about 400 to 500 Serbs, civilians, possibly fo former militants, disappeared. It may have been revenge killing. It looks like it. It may have been still some unresolved conflict, but essentially they were, they were removed. They were, quote, disappeared, to use the language that we're, we're used to from uh, Central America and South America. But what's amazing is their bodies have never been found. And uh, now there was very little political will in the world left after the Bosnia events, after you know the war in former Yugoslavia, we just now have this newly formed state. Nobody wanted to look into uh, what happened to the Serbs. But the stories of the militants were, and one of them was murdered, and now the people that spoke are pretty much in protection, witness protection programs. They said that they were delivering Serbs to uh, transit um, detention centers and then to some medicalized centers in Albania where they were told that the people would be killed, executed, but that there would be surgeons there that would remove their kidneys, which would be sent to Turkey. So that's the story, essentially, that now is being untangled going on in Kosovo. So uh, the UN protocol uh, really was developed around the problem of sex trafficking. When you think of trafficking, everybody thinks sex trafficking. And I've had many wonderful conversations with, I am a feminist myself, but with uh, uh, feminists take different positions. I don't think that all transacted sex cross borders is trafficking. And I agree with Elizabeth Bernstein that, uh, from Columbia that using a trafficking discourse can be very dangerous because the wrong people get caught up. In the case of sex trafficking, it's invariably the women who are trying to escape often uh, dire economic situations, say, in Eastern Europe and going to Turkey, and uh, often they're brokers who may be very poor people themselves and somehow not going after the, the networks that organize it and so forth. But So I agree with the um, critique of sex trafficking always, you know, or, or sex work cross borders always being viewed as, 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 as trafficking, but I actually think that although human organs was added on as an afterthought, it actually fits very well the description uh, 
that is that what is at, at, at work is fraud, deception, the abuse of vulnerability, and the fact that it's easier in the prosecutions, there have been about six prosecutions for organs trafficking, um, they know not to go after the buyers and the sellers. They see them both as victims of organs trafficking. So it's a little less dangerous, we might say. So um, why it's, it's a protected crime in a sense, or at least the perfect crime might be another term, is that it involves three or four different countries for any one transplant. The surgeons could fly in from one country, the, the buyers from another country, the hired hospital um, ward or the little clinic would be in another location, and uh, the sellers are brought in from yet another country. So you take it out, put it in, get everybody out of the country fast, and it's almost impossible to track, so very, very difficult. So it has a lot of requirements. You need to have people that are sick and willing to travel great distances, take enormous risks. There are many deaths of people who have traveled to China, to Turkey, to Azerbaijan, to Kosovo to be transplanted uh, without sometimes even knowing what their destination is. I had a man a few years ago in my living room, I'll call him David, and David was a wealthy uh, small businessman, no children, and he was tired of being on dialysis. He was in his late 50s, and I know his doctor well, Dr. Gabe Danovich said, you're not a good risk for transplant, David. You're low on the list, and you should be happy with dialysis. You're able to work. You do your dialysis at night. You're still making your business. He said, it's not a life for me. And so David got in contact with a team of very, very active brokers who I've been following for years there, transplant surgeons who broker, and he ended up en route via Israel to pick up one surgeon. From there, flew with that surgeon to Turkey to pick up the other surgeon. Then the three of them were en route to Kosovo. Kosovo. As they were getting on the plane, they were told that the police had stormed this medic medicus clinic, that they couldn't go to Kosovo. The broker is there, a guy named Moish Harel. His name is okay because he's wanted and wanted by police, so I don't, you know, reveal any names that I shouldn't. Moish Harrell says, David, the, that's the breaks. I mean, these clinics, they close down, they're fly-by-night, I can't promise you anything. But if you give me another 120 with a discount, not 180, 120, I'll get you a kidney in the next week. And sure enough, in Baku, in Azerbaijan, this guy got his kidney. So just to, in, in terms of mobility, imagine this kind of mobility. It's almost uh, unimaginable. So here you have Alberti da Silva, who ends up being taken from the slum in northeast Brazil to Durban, where he meets up with an African-American woman from New York City married to an Israeli. And that's how she got in, because this particular or, uh, criminal syndicate originated in Israel. There is plenty of organ selling and brokering in uh, Egypt, in the Gulf states, in South Asia, but the most international and well-organized one because of the diasporic community and because of the education and because of the uh, ability 
of medical insurance to pay for Israelis had been able to set these up. And it really is a marvel. So here's, you know, what happens to Alberti. And these are some of the people that were necessary to the scheme. You have to have aftercare people, surgeons. You have to have translators. You needed to have uh, the coordinators. You needed the hospital administration. Everybody had to be in on it. And uh, so what makes organs trafficking different from, let's say, arms tra trafficking or drug trafficking is the thing that makes it so protected, that it unites and links people at the highest levels of their career. Some of the most famous transplant surgeons in Turkey, in Israel, in the United States, in Colombia, Bogota, in, uh, in um, Azerbaijan, people who are known because it's a small profession, they go to these international meetings, have been willing to get involved with brokers, kidney hunters, money laundering schemes. Uh, and so it, it really, again, it kind of is amazing to me. And I think it's protected because people see it not as a traffic in bads, not as a rotten trade, but as uh, a traffic in goods, in life-saving organs. So there's a reluctance by prosecutors, by police, by governments to really crack down on this because they say, as Dr. Thompson said in Trenton, this is hard, she said, this is a very hard case. Somebody's getting their life saved at the expense of somebody else. So anyway, I more or less went over these things. These are uh, that the prosecutors I've talked to say it's the biggest headache in the world. There have been these prosecutions since 2004 in India, South Africa, Brazil, Moldova, Kosovo, Israel, U.S., so forth. But they're very, very difficult to process. It's very expensive to do it. You have uh, jurisdictions that don't match. You have countries that you're trying to extradite people that don't have treaties for extradition. And you have different legal uh, resources. Whether or not you have any precedents makes a difference. Who are the victims? Who are the perpetrators? Who are the collaborators? Who are the bystanders? Who do we go after? So it's been very exciting working with some of these people to try to um, sort it out. Um, but there are many, many complications involved in this. That is, we know of the deaths of people who have sold kidneys and come home quite sick with infections and have died. Many of them don't have medical certification, so we can't prove that they died as a result. Uh, we know that many buyers have died. Their doctors back home do not want to say on the death certificate that they died as a consequence of having gotten a, quote, poisoned kidney. So the data are often lacking. The other thing is, do you include in this crime of trafficking the fact that people who have sold their organs go back to Moldova, you know, they're blamed by the communities and are sometimes beaten up and cases of, of being beaten up to the, till they're dead because you've brought shame onto our community. There's revenge killings as the parents of kidney sellers go after the local brokers and try to kill them. Kidney selling in Eastern Europe with connections to both Turkey and Israel have are political problems. They, they set off old biases, old prejudices, and blood libels. They say, well, the Israelis are the surgeons, so they blame 
the Jews. The Muslims are the surgeons. That's because his connection is Turkish. A lot of these things, a lot of these transplants took place in Turkey. So very dangerous in terms of global political uh, relations. Okay, if it's a crime, the question raised is, who's the felon? Is it the kidney seller? I was shocked when I had one of several organs uh, watch conferences and a doctor at the conference said, I don't make me sit next to the felon. And I'm thinking, well, who are you talking about? They were talking about Nick Rosen. Nick doesn't mind that his uh, name is, is, he was cleared for illicit harvesting by the famous transplant team at Mount Sinai Hospital. He was brokered in Israel by a broker came to New York City, met another broker who he was handed over to. He met the person who got his kidney an hour before he was uh, cleared for transplant. With a he just little snapshots. Of so he's meeting for the first time the broker in a cafe next to Mount Sinai. I mean, not the broker, meeting the person to whom he's giving. The broker wouldn't allow his face. And so he's sharing some uh, little religious objects. Now they're inside Mount Sinai and get a very cursory uh, a clearance by these two doctors who have said, follow all regulations. This looks surgery. Yeah, that has nothing to do with the dialysis, right? Uh, there are a lot of very important kind of life or death issues that we need to discuss. Yeah. Okay. And uh, honestly, I, I don't think we can have a really... Okay, you want me to put this down? You can see <laughs> Nick uh, Rosen, the donor, but he was just 15 minutes as known as his name, Azadin al-Qassam, because he's Az and Hadin. <laughs> So he's getting kind of nervous trying to get, uh, so he's kissing goodbye, his kidney in the hospital. And the next scene is maybe X-rated, but he's showing you his scar that he. I he, press if I want uh, morphine for pain. All the morphine I, I want. And oh yes, your uh, medal of award for being a kidney donor. And then a huge, huge scar. doubts about what he did, realizing that every all the attention is being paid to the recipient, but he take the kidney and get out of here, basically. So, takes his $100 bill, got $20,000, that's a good price, and uh, that's the... Now, um... Okay, in that case, we could say it was contracted, but with regret afterwards, okay? That was um, not the worst possibility. But here's a case of a man, uh, Salah, and I, this person would probably not like to have his uh, picture shown, who was actually uh, a worker for a, a royal family in Qatar, and he was taken under deceptive auspices, you might say, uh, to um, the Cleveland Clinic for the family where he, was, uh, where he was forced to give his kidney to a family member of this family that he worked for. 
He had no idea when he was flown to the United States that he was doing anything other than being a servant to the family. He didn't realize that his period of servitude included being a, a kidney donor. Uh, I made a complaint. I launched, uh, you know, an investigation because uh, the man was very, very angry afterwards, and he was also looking for political asylum. Uh, not, yeah, political asylum in the United States. And the director of the transplant said, "Well, you know, we, you know we're going to hide behind the fact that we're protecting patients. You know, that we have no right to tell you exactly. But we're we're con we're content that everything was fine." So I think one has to question our hospital operating instructions. Is it a question of really due diligence? Is it don't ask, don't tell, which doesn't exist as a transplant policy? Don't care to know, don't care at all? You know, um, whose responsibility is it? So then the other question is, is the buyer and the family the felon? And some people have suggested that. And, uh, you know, I've tried to say no, <laughs> because here's Larry, taking, I mean, um, here's Daniel taking his black sheep cousin to China, and Larry dies a year after the operation. And, you know, here's the Gaddy Tauber, who I spoke about, are the brokers, the felons. Gaddy got an 11-year sentence, pretty stiff, for brokering the sale of Brazilians to South Africa for Israeli transplant. Here's an, a piece of underground, uh, of, try to get this is a broker. I'm undercover with an investigative journalist. So his story is, he is 39. 39, I should write myself here. What is his name? Mark. When he, he would like to make the operation? The sooner the better. As soon as the better. Okay. He can make it in uh, Istanbul. Uh, very quickly, I think. Even two weeks, but we do it in two weeks. I can't tell you uh, for sure till we don't make the, the cross match. Only after we shall make the cross match and everything will be okay, we should do it. So, so. And how much is it? Okay, the cost is one hundred forty thousand dollars. One hundred forty thousand. Uh, he's a very, uh, a very good uh, surgeon, Professor Yusuf uh, Samuels. He's one of the best. Yes, more than a thousand people. Okay, he's done more than a thousand uh, illegal operations. In fact, Dr. Yosef Samnaz has done over 2,500 illicit um, operations. And uh, I guess if you ask me who the felon is, for me it's the outlaw surgeons, because without them, nothing would happen. So this is the famous Yosef Sumnez. His, his picture has been in the newspapers, um, so I'm not revealing anything. But he was, and still is, at large, and for many years, the Turkish surgeon to go to for illicit transplant. He's called Robin Hood by his patients, Dr. Vulture by the uh, providers of kidneys. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. This is a slide presentation in 2008 at an international transplant meeting where Dr. Sumnez, although he's wanted by several countries, was allowed to give his presentation. So I have to say that the transplant profession is not as organized around this as they should be. And he was arguing that in urging his colleagues to do what he did. He said, uh, I, I have two of his 
PowerPoints, and uh, they were locked, but I unlocked, got them unlocked, that basically he said, this is the most scientific thing to do. He said, you'll never be able to get enough deceased donors. There are more people than you can imagine willing to sell. So the, the, the best procedure, the most scientific procedure, is for the surgeon to be both harvesting and transplanting the kidney. You can, you can look at it. You have in your hands an organ that you just got out of the body of a provider. No time is wasted. And he says, my 2,200 transplant patients have excellent prognosis with, without HLA tissue matching. So there is something interesting that's come out of this. In fact, that's true of all the illegal transplants. Basically, they'll match up half of you with half of you here. They'll make sure that the blood won't kill you, but even there, they take some risks and pump you up with all kinds of immunosuppressant drugs. The idea is the immediate return is we'll send you home with a kidney, uh, but there's no guarantee of what happens afterwards. When uh, Sumnez was contested by a Moldovan surgeon who said, well, you're saying that you have good outcomes for your transplant tourists. What about the donors? And he replied, they're not my patients, they're contract workers. In a developed country. So here's one of his... You go back as a poor person. We could put this up a little higher. This is the last. I have two very... That's what happened to Vladimir Dimenetti. Okay. He was one of the young kidney sellers Shepard Hughes met on her last visit to Menjir in 2003. Very sick. At that time, that. he was still suffering from complications from his operation four years earlier. <laughs> Shepard Hughes wanted to check in on him. But shortly before our visit, she found out he had already died. She met with Vladimir's father, Basile. I'm so sorry. But the father did have some urgent questions for Shepard Hughes. He wanted to know what had happened to the woman who had recruited his son for the kidney traffickers, the same woman who had coerced Nikolai Bardon, whom we met earlier, and dozens of other young men from Menjir into selling their kidneys. He's asking us whether we know anything about that woman. Just that she's a criminal and uh, she was part of a mafia. Mm -hmm. And uh, she uh, deserves to be in jail and she deserves to be punished. He knows that you know, she... she uh, no, 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 so I'll just uh, stop here and say he know what he was in, this, in the cemetery we're talking about the aftermath of the death, including the fact that the community has organized and ran the broker out of town, but they tried to kill her. So it really became a mob scene. But not only do the sellers die, but I have many, many of the victims of this international traffic, like Mr. Tati, uh, and I've written an article, Tati's Holiday, which was not much of a holiday because he uh, was brought by Sumnez and uh, Shapira to Adana in Turkey and was told that he would be transplanted with a kidney from someone who was like uh, a brother to him because Mr. Tati was an Iraqi Jewish person, okay? And the person they got was an Iraqi soldier that was AWOL crossing the border and they did not match at all. And 
Tati had to be taken by emergency airlift back to Israel where he died a few years later. He never got over it, basically. So, I mean, really, uh, the ones that get caught up the most easily in the prosecutions are the brokers. They're not innocent people, uh, but they're also the most visible. And they don't have the protection that the surgeons have. And uh, so Sumnez was involved in the Kosovo Clinic. In 2008, this man triggered a prosecution because he fainted in the airport. And he was, uh, they found a fresh wound. They found under the bandages that he had a few thousand dollars that he was given to get away. And that launched a, a prosecution that's ongoing. And maybe uh, just the last slide to, this is an earlier film that I made with a French um, investigative reporter on my first trip to Moldova. And uh, this uh, man is... Translated by my Saying that he went to the hospital to uh, try to get an explanation for why he had no energy. And why he had headaches, and why he had um, backaches, and he was told that he had incipient kidney failure in his kidney of last resort because of untreated hypertension. What were his options in Moldova? Uh, because of the scandals of kidney selling and uh, of brokers and prosecutions in Romania and Moldova, Moldova no longer does transplants in the public sector. I believe there are a couple of private doctors that do it. But, and something like 30 dialysis machines for the entire population. So telling this man he has incipient kidney failure from untreated hypertension is essentially telling him that he has, uh, you know, a fatal disease. And yet here he's the provider of, of kidneys. So um, just a few pictures of Mr. Rosenbaum, who was our kidney broker when he was arrested in 2009 and uh, who had worked with dozens of our best hospitals uh, they're part of the indictment, and the hospitals were from Johns Hopkins to Albert Einstein to Mount Sinai to Cleveland Clinic to University of Minnesota to UCLA, just about anywhere he could place people. So I think uh, one of my, my problems is that Mr. Rosenbaum, guilty as he was, stood alone in the courtroom in Trenton, New Jersey. I got to meet him at the sentencing. And I was a little bit frightened to go because he had known that I had uh, shared information with the authorities about what he was doing. Um, and I was shocked at the response. Uh, in the courtroom, there were about 300 uh, community members from the Hasidic community in Williamsburg and Borough Park, as well as from Deal, New Jersey, all supporting him in a very, very decorous way. And when a break was taken, Mr. Rosenbaum came up to me, and it was like Livingstone or whatever. He said, I think I know you, Nancy. And I said, Mr. Rosenbaum, I think you do. And uh, I put out my hand, and he gave me his fingers. His wife rushed over, and she said, you may not touch my husband's hand. We're Orthodox Jews, and women are not allowed to do that. I said, well, we've touched hands, and many, you know, and through many communications, uh, we've had a relationship for a very long time. And it was an extraordinary um, trial because uh, the community was saying 
your work is excellent. It's noble work. But Mr. Rosenbaum was a saint. You got him wrong. He never exploited. Now, I actually know that he was not a saint and that people were forced to give kidneys who didn't want to. But their answer was to say, what about Iran? What about Iran? Why can't we have a regulated system like Iran? Could I imagine that I'm talking to an Orthodox Jewish person who was thought to be a rabbi about let's go the Iranian way? That's globalization, you might say. And I asked, I said, Mr. Rosenbaum, why are you alone in this courtroom? Where were all the surgeons and the hospital administrators who were, who were collaborating with you? Who, who, were, who you, were your conspirers? He said, it was a decision that was made by my lawyers to not go there. It, it seemed to me that it was a, a very weak prosecution. One of the persons that was brought in as a witness for the prosecution was one of his uh, sellers, who was an African, uh, what's called a black Hebrew in, uh, in Israel, who had... Uh, his family had migrated from Chicago as steelworkers and had uh, been part of this organization in Israel. And uh, Ilan Quick, who's a, a beautiful six foot two African American, now uh, converted to this group, got up and said that he was going through hard times in Israel. He began to disengage from the black Hebrew movement. He thought that they weren't thoroughly integrated into Israeli society. He met a man who said, I have a solution for your problems. Elon was a locksmith. He said, you know, come to the United States. You give a kidney. It's like having a tooth extracted. You'll be back to work, you know, in 24 hours. And in fact, uh, when he arrived to New York, it was such a rush job because the uh, transplant patient was waiting. And uh, the hospital, which was the University of um, Minnesota, uh, refused to uh, give the kidney of one of Mr. Rosenbaum's other brokered you know, donors, and that person was schizophrenic. So the fact is that you know, in looking for people to sell, sometimes the people that are selected are not fully mentally competent, or they're in such bad straits, they're willing to do almost anything. So... Elon was rushed to Minnesota, but at, before they got, when they were on their way to the airport, Mr. Rosenbaum asks the escort, who's actually the uh, enforcer, to make sure that Elon will actually get on the table, not really a, a protector of Elon. And Rosenbaum says, where are the blood? We have to have the blood tests. And uh, Ito, the broker, said, I didn't have time. We had to rush Elon out of Israel to get to Minnesota. So they stopped at Rosenbaum's house and brought down um, syringes and took, you know, five vials of blood from Elon, didn't even bother to go to a clinic. So if anyone thinks this isn't trafficking, I, I, I would be hard put, you know, to defend the system as it is. So in the end, what can we expect? I, I found that although I'm not generally, I'm certainly not in favor of high penalties and prisons as solutions, I think that these first prosecutions in Brazil, in South Africa, in Kosovo, in uh, New Jersey, have put a damper on the, the traffic. It has certainly stopped the traffic in South Africa, without a doubt, because that prosecution didn't just go after the brokers. It went after 
the medical insurance company. It went after the net care private medical corporation, and it went after the surgeons. And uh, I think that uh, Brazil, too, is extremely vigorous in going after all the people, including the blood lab workup people, and uh, put people you know, behind bars for a pretty long time. Now, these are, to me, just a, a kind of a, a message, I guess, to the brokers and to the buyers and the sellers that, you know, this is not something that, you know, is, is being taken as a win-win situation. That uh, now what the solution will be after these prosecutions, um, we all hope that there will be, I, I don't know if you read the newspapers lately, but there are promises that biotechnology is now going to work on these 3D print kidneys from, you know, using a combination of uh, genomics and personalized medicine to actually grow kidneys. I doubt that's going to happen very soon. That's one solution to the problem. Another is that there be presumed consent, which works in Europe very well. I doubt will be ever accepted in the United States. The idea that everyone is potentially a donor to everyone else. That only works, I think, in a society where you have national health service, where people feel their bodies have been taken care of well while they're alive so that they can be generous at death. Uh, it's harder in a country that has many divisions, political divisions, racial divisions, ethnic divisions. So there is um, a lot of suspicion in some communities in the United States about whether at the time a person is in an ICU whether if you're of a certain ethnic group that maybe the doctors will be a little less cautious about trying to revive someone or a little bit too zealous in declaring someone brain dead. So that's, an, uh, you know, another problem. Obviously prevention, obviously because so much of transplant is the result of diabetes in the United States. That is a preventable disease. But it's hard to talk prevention to people who already, you know, have diabetes or have lost limbs and are on, you know, and want a, a transplant. So there isn't a, a magic bullet to this. The magic bullets are possible, but they seem to be years away. So in the meantime, what I've done is I've printed, and I'm happy to send to any of you what I call a donor's or an organ donor or an organ seller, whether it's a li any living person, uh, basically a bill of rights. And I'll just end by reading uh, what the Bill of Rights, I think, should be. And I have to say that I don't think money is the problem in all of this. That would be just too medieval an idea. I think it's buying from a stranger that's the problem. And it comes out of my readings of Emmanuel Levinas and Martin Buva, you know, the sort of I-vow relationship. So I, I, I um, will pull out this Bill of Rights which is attached to a letter, an open letter, to people who are considering buying a kidney. And I ask just one thing. If you can't get a transplant any other way, if no one, uh, you know, you're low on the list, you're too old, but you have a lot of money, then if you feel you must buy a kidney, buy it from one, someone you know, someone you love which kind of is like a strange thing to say, but it's simply because it's the question of responsibility for the body of the other. That is that you both have responsibility for each other. 
And uh, in fact, I, I learned that from my work in Brazil where, where there is payment often within extended families. The payment may not be in money, it may be in kind, a college education, a job, a house. And uh, while it seems bizarre, uh, uh, at this point, I don't know quite where else to go. But I think that the Living Organ Donor Bill of Rights should begin with a couple of basic principles. One is that all humans have the right to bodily integrity, that organs are every person's birthright, yet a person's patrimony. Humans both are and have a body. And I guess I think in terms of a post-Cartesian notion of the person, not cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, but rather embodied, therefore I am. I think that medicine has to recognize, I believe that living donation is ethical, can be heroic, uh, but that there are no spare parts. There are no spare kidneys, there are no spare lungs, there are no spare part livers. That way of thinking is rhetoric and it's simply not true. So I think that both parties have to be aware of the fact that, that this is a huge sacrifice and uh, uh, it's still honorable and ethical to be an organ donor and even to be a paid donor, but it's never an obligation that someone should feel. And l that green donation, which I call deceased donors, should be the, the, de uh, the default system. Red donation, because it involves the blood of living persons, should be the exception and not the rule. And that organ selling is very rarely a win-win situation. So one has to acknowledge that there are vulnerable populations, populations that are all too eager to sell, but they may be unemployed, prisoners, the mentally ill, the mentally deficient, undocumented guest workers, those are almost in order, the populations that sell their kidneys in my study. And um, so recognize the role of power and powerlessness that, that based on gender, race, class, education. And establish a principle of solidarity. Solidarity with the sick and solidarity with the weak and the displaced and the dispossessed in equal, in equal measure. Understand that living on dialysis is suffering. So not to exclude empathy or solidarity with the sick, but also to have that same kind of solidarity extended to the kidney provider. And um, recognize that many of the consequences of kidney selling, the scars, are, are invisible. It's not just the disabling scar that I talked about in the classroom uh, a couple of hours ago. Uh, one of the things I didn't say when I was talking about the meaning of the scar in different countries, and it can be a sign if you've done something good or a sign, sign that you've been you know, exploited, or it can be uh, uh, decorated. People in Manila, as well as in Brazil, decorate with tattoos their scars and you know, try to show it. But no one talks about the scar of the recipient. And so, you know, there's uh, somehow a lack of congruence in the way we look at buying and selling and scarring and the body. Uh, the, the last thing is that, the thing that most irks me about the United States is that our hospitals allow people who are anonymous, who may be paid on the side, I'll tell you, if I told you one last story, you would not believe it, but I got a call from a guy who said, come tomorrow to the hospital. 
I just bought a kidney. I was counseling him on not buying a kidney. He was a young man in his early 30s in L.A. Uh, I was telling him that since he had uh, a grandfather who was Iranian, he could go to Iran, he could do it legally. I told him how, if he had money in his family, he had money, that he could double, triple, quadruple list in a variety of, we don't have a single wait list, and you could be like the bingo lady in the church who has five cards rather than one. I told him all those things, and he called me up and he said, I went on Craigslist and I found, I found two donors and I took the cheapest. So I want you to come and see how it's done. I was at uh, the Hospital of the Stars, Cedar sinai and the donors were two undocumented, was a brother and his undocumented, both from South Korea, younger brother. The younger brother was brokered by the older brother. The younger brother didn't really want to do it, but he was unemployed, had no, you know, so he was meanwhile being sent up to the OR, and the money, which was a decent amount of money, $20,000, went up in a backpack by the uncle of the patient, and the money was exchanged on the surgical floor, possibly in a closet or a, a bathroom. That part wasn't clear, but um, after both parties were put under anesthesia, and uh, the young man, I'll call him Sean, was saying, we just want to know how ethical it is. We were not saying that the kidney had to be decent or it had to work. We were just saying you couldn't take the money and run. You have to go under anesthesia, then you get the money. Now, here I was, a professor of the University of California with all my ID, and I had a hard time getting up by the invitation of the families. I want to know how that uncle with a backpack with $20,000 got up in the elevator to the surgical ward and was able to square the debt if the surgeons weren't uh, involved. So my final one is, no transplant with living donors if that donor does not have medical insurance. And that was the case, of course, with these young men, the, uh, the young man and his brother. They were undocumented. They, you know, needed money fast. They were in desperate straits. But it seems to me the height of uh, unethical behavior for a doctor, a surgeon, uh, to allow someone to be harmed by their surgery and not even worry what happens to them if they should happen like Nikolai or like Viorel or like any of the uh, young men in Brazil who afterwards had problems because of untreated medical conditions that were pre-existing and were not properly cared for. So I would end here and I'm sorry I went overly long and I hope that you're still willing to stay with me and contest or raise questions or give me ideas that might help me in where I go next. But thank you very much for your patience. Right. Yeah. I have a fast one. Uh, so it, feasibly, if we lived in a society where there weren't all these divisions and everybody would feel good about right. donating, it, could it be possible to have a good supply just through everybody signing their you know, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, well, some doctors will say no, yeah. but uh, Spain has done it. Spain has no waiting list. If we all became organ donors. We all just said, okay, just put it on the... Yeah, that, that you have to opt out. It's called an opting out, that you're in unless you have personal reservations, no one will question it, you're out. Now, Israel uh, has done that in response to, you know, the fact that they were so stigmatized by 
you know, all this reportage about the Israeli organized criminal syndicate and so forth, that they have um, uh, first gotten a law that passed the scrutiny of the Orthodox community that there will be kosher brain death. Whatever it is they're going to do, it's going to be kosher because they, you know, it wasn't. It probably means that. And I remember the transplant surgeons in Israel telling me in 1999, I will not have, you know, uh, a rabbi when I declare brain death present. But I know that's what the community wanted. I think that they simply had very, very strict uh, uh, protocol for declaring brain death that could be trusted by everyone. Second, something that I'm not sure I think is actually within the realm of, you know, medical justice. That is, if you opt out of what is essentially a universal donation system, then you are low waitlisted if it's your turn for an organ. So a balance, what Marshall Solins would call a kind of balanced reciprocity, you don't want to give, you're going to be very low in getting. But doctors, you see, surgeons, uh, uh, and I could talk forever about the moral thinking of surgeons, I mean, one of the things is that they feel absolutely obligated, like every other kind of doctor, to treat you whether you're Jack the Ripper or not. And the idea of equity is not a tit-for-tat equity, but rather those who are most in need should be taken care of. So that would be a problem. But, um, you know, we kind of have that system, uh, an NGO, called organ sharing has its own, its own waiting list. And it's only for people who have agreed to uh, give organs and, then with, uh, and those then can get organs from anybody in this circle because they believe so strongly, either we're all in it together, you know, one for all or all for one, or forget it because the wait list is very hard to decipher too. I mean, it's, it's called organ sharing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Are there any other organs that are being trafficked? Yeah. Uh, in China, liver, half liver. And I have <laughs> many more slides I could show you. Um, and, and also, um, it's very, very dangerous. That, I mean, not, I mean, it's dangerous in the United States. It's done under very, in fact, some liver transplant units have been closed down because they didn't think that the care, in fact, donors have died that there wasn't you know, enough premium care for the, for the donor. Um, but in, in, in uh, China, it's, pretty, it's really pretty risky. And it, it, there was a website that now is closed down that was advertising kidneys, and I thought, oh, is this a scam? Because some of these, they just want some down payment money. Can they actually do it? And they had uh, the pictures of the patients with their phone numbers who, uh, you know, and showing them standing next to their donor or whatever of a half liver and their names and their serial numbers. And I thought, wow, that's uh, pretty impressive. I guess they just took their medical records and put it up. Um, so it, it, the other, uh, no, uh, f the other organs that are sold um, are basically tissues and solid organs from the, the truly dead, not even the brain dead, but the deceased dead, and that's not for transplant except for cornea, uh, which are uh, become a commodity. Tissues, uh, is, uh, tissues are sold around the world, just around the world. And when the WHO committee that I was part of, which met for about five years, they finally decided we're going to focus on living donors 
because the, the deceased tissue problem is impossible to manage. That is, uh, the, by the time tissue, bone, including skin, whatever, is taken from a dead body, legally or illegally, let's say legally even, and then sold, it becomes a product because it's alienated, so alienated from the body, get back to Kant, it's been processed, it's been frozen, it's been, you know, just processed. It has become a product. And uh, that product, you have the right by various bills and whatever legislature to sell these things for the handling fees, not for a profit. But of course, everyone knows that this profit's being made, that, uh, that uh, eye banks and blood banks and all, they, they make quite a bit of money. But so, but they, the WHO decided they would, they would not pay attention to it. It was just uh, too thorny an issue. Um, that one diagram you showed, like kind of a world map, um, right. blue countries and red countries. Yeah. Pretty much nothing from Europe or Africa was involved. Yeah, that I have to upgrade that. Africa, uh, uh, um, Central Equatorial Africa has very little transplant. There is organs trafficking in parts of West Africa. There always has been in North Africa, of course, South Africa, because that's one of my main cases, which I didn't get to discuss, and a very interesting one. Europe, uh, yeah, should have been there, but you see, it depends on one of the problems with um, talking about who's involved in trafficking is that often the um, transplant, International Transplant Society, only names the donor countries the countries where you get the sellers from. So it'll be Egypt, and it'll be, uh, you know, Pakistan, and it'll be Panama, actually Ecuador. Oh, there's a lot of countries that have come up. But um, uh, Romania, Moldova, Bulgaria have been providers. But then if you add on what are the countries that facilitate, that do the operations, then you have the United States and U UK and South Africa and whatever. And if you have the countries where the buyers come from, you know, then, then you have almost everyone is, is, is it, it's, it's a real global game. And uh, sometimes I'm, I'm questioned about the fact that I, I spent so, so much uh, part of my work in Organs Watch following this one very extensive Israeli brokerage firm that I was picking on Israel. And I said, no, it was really accidental. It was that I would you know, there's a technique in sociology called snowballing, where if you're, st if you're studying a topic, especially if it's somewhat stigmatized, let's say incest in the family, where people don't like to talk about it, but you talk to one person, and then that person says, well, I know someone else, and then that, so then you kind of snowball and you get your convenient sample that way. Well, I was snowballing by country. So I would go uh, to South Africa, and I'd say, I hear you have some transplanter, and they say, well, but, you've got to go to Israel because that's where they're coming from. And so then I go to Israel and they go, well, you've got to go to Moldova. That's where we're getting, or Bulgaria or here or there. So I was just filling in the dots by traveling as my, I go to Turkey because that's where the transplants. So I followed all of those leads. By the time I was done, 10 years later, I realized I was following the same group. I mean, those two surgeons are not alone, but they were very, very powerful, and they did thousands of, of uh, together or separate or with other, collaborating with others. So it's a small form of trafficking that could be stopped if that's what we want to do. The other thing is the question of can we regulate it? And there, all I have to say is um, if that's where, if that's what, it has to be self-sufficient by nation, by nation, the way Iran did it. That is, you can't have people coming in and, 
you know, buying the organs of your people, which is happening in, in the Philippines. It's mainly, they're another universal donor nation because it's, it's degrading to the nation. It's, uh, it, it's not a healthy political situation. I may not like the idea that in Iran, you know, you buy and sell. It's still poor to better, better off people, even though supposedly everyone who needs a kidney in Iran gets it. It turns out, of course, you have influence with doctors. It's the same thing where people that are working class and poor are not the best bets, and so they don't always get recommended for transplant. And brokers have stepped into Iran. So behind the, the, the nice the very nice regulatory system, and I have to say, I've met many Iranian surgeons and they've explained the system to me a million times, but what they couldn't anticipate was that the system was based on, an, on anonymity. So that is, you went to a place that would look like uh, the Department of Social Services and you register yourself as, uh, I will give my kidney to the next person on the list. And you get a compensation, not a payment. This is, you know, a religious thing, and no, no, but you will be getting something like $1,500 to thank you for being a heroic organ donor. So it's, it's not a payment. What happens is that the buyers want to know who they're getting the kidney from. If it's living, they don't want a person who might not have lived a very healthy life, who's maybe not a healthy young man between the ages of 23 and 29. It might be somebody older. Maybe they didn't really check really carefully to see if this person is a vegetarian or is whatever, the, whatever it is they want, college-educated, a college-educated kidney. So the brokers behind the scenes, yeah, they, they, they give up to $25,000 to get you the designer kidney of your choice. Well, once that happens, then all of my reservations, uh, you know, come back and I say, how can this be done? so that it's fair, that it's compatible with medical ethics, compatible with equity, justice, fairness in the country, and, um, you know, uh, possibly it can be done. But I'm, I'm not satisfied with what Iran came up with, although I know that their intentions were, were right. I know that it was, but it just didn't work out so well in the end. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.